Let's turn our Bibles again, 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'll pray and we'll get into our study. Father, as we uh, open your word, just appreciate what uh, Nick shared about walking humbly with you, loving mercy, doing justice, doing justly, uh, recognizing, Lord, our relationship with you uh, cannot do anything but affect also our relationship with our fellow human being, regardless of their economic, social, racial, any background that they have, Lord, that you've called us to this simplicity of loving you with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as ourself. And then you even raise that to love one another as you have loved us. And Lord, we just confess we fall short in the simplest of things. That our selfishness gets in the way, our pride gets in the way, our fears get in the way. And Lord, we know you're changing us though. We know the things we do are wrong. We know the things we want to do, we don't do. The things we don't want to do, that's the very thing we do. And we cry out with the Apostle Paul, wretched people that we are. Who can rescue us? And then we're reminded that you are the rescuer. That we can walk in the Spirit. And we don't have to walk according to the flesh. And so we're thankful, Lord, that you've shown us another way. You've brought us out of the darkness into the light. You've opened our eyes. You've cleaned up our minds. And you've, you've given life to our consciousness, Lord. All by the power of your Spirit. The power of your life in us. So, Lord, we give you the, the place today to continue to live out your life through ours that we would die to ourselves and that you would be able to live through us in a way that people would know who you are and, and, be, and be able to worship you for who you are. Use our lives in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Second uh, Peter, oh, I think I'm, are there papers somewhere? I've lost papers. Ah, I think they're over here. So I'll walk and talk at the same time here. Second Peter, we uh, left off last week. At the first three chapters, excuse me, first three verses, evidently I can't walk and talk at the same time. Anybody have gum? We'll give that a shot. If you were here for the study in John, you remember kind of the last uh, chapter, Peter was recommissioned, Peter, the author of, of Second Peter. He was recommissioned after having uh, denied the Lord three times. Jesus comes to him, and, and actually he comes to Jesus, swims up the shore, and, and Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? If you love me, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. So he takes Peter and changes him from a fisherman into a shepherd. And I think that really, I mean, if Jesus said that to me, and he has, uh, you take that seriously. And I think Peter really walked in that. He, he took it seriously to feed the flock. And that's what the first chapter of Second Peter is about. He's, he's helping to stir up uh, the minds of the people in the church to remember things they'd forgotten because he knew, this, he knew he was close to his own death and he had to leave them these things because he knew the challenges they would face. And so the first thing he says is you've got to remember you can trust the word of God. Your experiences can be iffy. Someone else's experiences can be iffy. But you, and he, said, he tells them, look, you can trust. I got to stir you up. I got to remind you. Because there's all kinds of information out there. There's all kinds of messages out there. But listen, when you get confused, 
when you get distracted, when you get discouraged, you can absolutely trust the Word of God. And that's great. So that's where he sort of brings us. And then he says, but there were also false prophets. So there's the Word of God, and then there's people that supposed to speak the Word of God, but they're really not. They're really speaking from themselves. They have a hidden agenda. They have an ulterior motive. And this is where it gets confusing, right? That's, that, that's just so discouraging. You know, why, why does it have to be like that? But it's like that because there's also the, the power of evil in the world. And Satan wants to do anything to distract you from worshiping God. To get you sidetracked, discouraged, or, or uh, confused somehow. And so that's, this is Satan's agenda, to imitate the work of God to distract people from what's real and, and lure them slowly into what's false. Now, how, how many of you uh, parents have, have uh, young children? You know, maybe uh, middle school age, younger. I mean, even if, even if your kids are older, how many of you would say you worry about your kids? Yeah, because you, you guys have shepherd's hearts. I mean, your parents. You understand the, the dangers that they face that they don't even understand yet, right? You know they're out there. But they're too naive, they're too immature, they're too young, they haven't seen it like you've seen it. And so that's why we worry. Kids that are in here, we worry because we love you. And because we've seen it, and we've struggled with it, and we've been caught by it ourselves, and we just try to rescue you from the same trouble we went through. Well, I did a little research, uh, online predators, we know that word predator, because uh, this is a growing challenge with media the way it is, with access. Kids can go in the room, lock the door. They got it on their phones, their iPods, their tablets. They have access all the time to media, but so do the predators. Now, predators don't prey on the strong and the smart and the wise, do they? Who to pre- what, what are the the, the, the uh, wolf doesn't come after the sheepdog. He comes after the lambs, the weak, or... The, the, the unstable is what Peter says. So here's just a couple of statistics. Uh, approximately 93% of all Americans between 12 and 17 years of age are Internet users. That was 2007, likely more than that now. Uh, one in five U.S. teens who regularly log on to the Internet say they have received an unwanted sexual solicitation via the web. Solicitations were defined as requests to engage in sexual activities or sexual talk or to give out sexual, personal sexual information. And only 25% of those told a parent. About 30% of the victims of internet uh, exploitation are boys. Predators fall between the ages of 18 and 55, although some are older or younger. They target those between ages of 11 and 15. In 100% of cases, oh, notice the word target, by the way. In 100% of the cases, teens that are victim of sexual predators have gone willingly to meet with them. Teens are willing to meet with strangers. 16% of teens consider meeting someone they've only talked to online, and 8% have actually met, someone, met with someone they only knew online. And 75% of children are willing to share personal information online about themselves and their family in exchange for goods and services. It's promising them something that they want, and then they're willing to do something that they shouldn't to get that. So there's online predators. Parents, we worry about that. We, we understand that. We try to to protect our kids. We, how many of you parents have warned your children about something? Warned them about, and if you haven't, you should. 
even if they're going to not listen to you, which they probably won't. Well, Peter, in chapter 2, is doing the same thing. You can understand what he's talking about. He is warning them that there are not just internet predators, there are spiritual predators. And they are just as wise and just as cunning, and we talked about that uh, last week. They bring in supposed truth, they smuggle it in. They don't, come, they don't wear a sign that says false teacher, and they come in the church, and, and, you know, and, and everybody identifies them. They don't come bringing a, some crazy out-of-this-world message. The challenge is, is most of what they say is, is sounds good. They use the right words. They say the right things. They talk about Jesus. They talk about resurrection. Uh, but they don't mean the same things. And they smuggle in alongside 95% of what's true, this 5% of error. I, I, I downloaded this well, maybe we'll come back to that. I have, I have a, a statement from a church, a Lutheran church website. Not to, that just happens to be, I could have got to, gone to a number of church websites probably to find it, but that just happened to be where it was from. We'll come back to that later. So this is what Peter's trying to do. He's talking to them about the reality of these things happening. So much of the New Testament is written because heresies or false teachings were, were growing and, and building steam and people were being led away from Christ. And so much of the New Testament was written to let people know, if you know what's true, listen, what is the remedy? How do I protect myself from being led astray? It's knowing the truth. If you, knowing the truth makes you so powerful. It makes you uh, so much more able to withstand. It, it makes you much less vulnerable. So that's why I love you know, so many Christians, they, you don't have any idea what's in this. There's a lot. I meet pastors that don't know most of what's in here. And that's why I love that we go through verse by verse and chapter by chapter. The better you know the word of God, the safer you will be from being led astray. So study it. Get into it. That's what Peter's saying. Know the word of God because there are false teachers and, and there are, are false doctrines that will lead you astray. And the ultimate end of that, and this is the problem, if you follow someone, where do you end up? wherever they end up. So you better know who you're following and you better know where they're going because I hope you like it because that's where you're going to be. And that's the reality of it, right? Anybody ever followed someone to an event that didn't know where they were going? And then pretty soon you're driving in a circle going, we're lost. And well, we're following you. I told you you should have asked for directions, honey. We don't need directions. I know right where I'm going. And so we left off Peter saying in chapter 2 that their, their agenda is covetousness. They're not, they're not interested in God. They're not interested in you other than how they can exploit you and use you for their own gain. And it's still, I'm so naive, it still amazes me that that exists in the, in the world. It amazes me that that exists in the church. And we know it, you've seen it, you've read articles about it, you've, you've seen it on TV, you know it's there. But they're exploited, they're using people's desire for the things of God and they're taking advantage of that twisting the message to take advantage of you and and separate you from your money oftentimes but there's other agendas too and Peter said for a long time their judgment has not been idle their destruction does not slumber and so now he gives some examples starting in, in verse four and we're going to have to make some time I'd like to finish the whole chapter 
Uh, it really paints a picture of the false teachers, their agenda, their end, their motives, their methods, all of these things. Peter lays it out. He wants them to see the real picture of, of what people are being tempted by. So he gives an example. He gives actually three examples of the fact that if you, if you think about following false teaching, if you think maybe there's something attractive about it, pay attention to their end because what he says with these three examples is if we think about it, judgment is inevitable. Now, I said the word judgment. It's not a popular word in church these days. But we're just going right on through the Bible. I love that. For if God, verse 4, did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And this is where Peter is going, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And we'll stop right there for this section. As a parent, I set the stage. How would it be if it was your son? And maybe some of you have experienced this. Maybe anybody in here smoke? No, don't raise your hand. But if you smoke, how'd you get your first cigarette? Somebody presented it, offered it as a cool option. Maybe it was a movie. Maybe it was TV. Maybe it was an actor, actress. Maybe it was a friend, a brother or sister. Hey, man, try this. Maybe it wasn't a cigarette. Maybe it was, it was your first uh, opportunity to try drugs. Or maybe it was the first opportunity to try sex. But someone enticed you and convinced you to try it. Now, if that was my daughter or my son, you better believe I'm mad at the person who has brought them, has introduced them into a lifestyle or a thing and has encouraged them in that, that ultimately is going to lead to their having a lot of problems. Because it's not just a one-time thing, right? It ends up causing problems that can be for a lifetime. And as a parent, like, man, I'm not real happy about that. And Peter's looking at his people and he says, look, remember... God ultimately does judge. And, and we say to that, amen. You might not think you do, but we know justice is right. We know ultimately, now that we're in this sort of time out. See, this is what he says. He talks about angels. For God did not spare the angels. And they, they, there is some common knowledge. There were angels. Revelation chapter 12 talks about a third of the angels being cast down from heaven. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 also talks about these angels that will, when we get into Genesis, we'll study that more. Uh, Jude talks about angels who left their first domain. They rebelled against God. And these were angels. They had angels. They had will. They followed Satan and were, were cast down out of heaven. He says, and they were reserved. The, the angels that sinned, but he cast them down to hell or to Tartarus, the lowest, the lowest place, the pit and delivered them into chains of darkness, or, or literally uh, pits of darkness, to be reserved for judgment. So they were held there until the time of judgment would come. So again, these false teachers seem to be getting away with it. And sometimes people mistake God's patience 
for God's tolerance and for God's acceptance. Say, well, I've seemed to be getting away with it. Everything seems, I'm, you know, I'm doing this thing and I seem to be doing okay. God doesn't seem to care or mind. And he's telling them that they've been reserved for this future time of judgment. So that's one. Angels were judged. And then the next verse talks about Noah and the, the ancient world. For God did not spare the ancient world. Again, Genesis chapter 6. We all know the flood story. We got the ark and the giraffe with his head sticking out the top, you know. But we forget there were probably 3 billion people on the face of the earth at that time. Henry Morris in his commentary on Genesis uh, makes that suggestion that there, there was quite a number of people on the earth. And they were living and marrying and giving in marriage. And Noah was preaching about righteousness and God and, and judgment coming for 120 years. And people thought he was an old coot foolish and building some crazy, that crazy old Noah. I always appreciate this about Noah. How many people got saved with Noah? Noah, his wife, his three sons, and, and somehow uh, three wives he found amidst. Genesis chapter 6 tells us that even the, the foundations of the thoughts of the hearts of people were wicked. And God repented that he had made man. He saw what had become of man. And, and this is happening even in our midst, isn't it? In the last days, the love of many will grow cold. People will be lovers of themselves and haughty and proud and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure. And we see that. And, and, and if we get out of our own little corner for a minute and we look around the world and you see the abusiveness of people toward other people. You can imagine a day when the whole thing, when, when I mean, thank God for the church, Right? I mean, thank God for the influence of Jesus. There was no influence of Jesus Christ in the world. Even people that reject God in America have been influenced by the morality of Christianity. The things we think are right and wrong, so much of that has been formed by Christ. Our, our ideas about um, womanhood and manhood, what they're supposed to be, marriage and children and family and music and all these things formulated by and, and driven by a godly morality. When that's rejected, when, when, when we get to the place where God is more and more pushed out of the picture, what naturally happens in the world? When people start to do what's right in their own eyes, the whole thing begins to, to really come unglued. And that's what happened in the ancient world. This, uh, the potential of, of some strange thing that happened, again, we'll get into this more when we get into Genesis chapter 6, uh, fallen angels uh, having relationships, relationships with um, human uh, women and the offspring of that, the, these giants, and it's a very, very strange thing we'll read about in Genesis chapter 6. But ultimately what he says here is that God didn't spare the ancient world. A whole world that had fallen into to wickedness and God judged that world. And, and Noah, but he, see, he didn't all, did all the angels fall? No, a third of them. There's still two-thirds. Well, did all the world get judged? No, there was Noah and his family. And I always appreciate this. I don't know much, you know, I can't wait to meet Noah because I think this is awesome. In a world where everything was all about wickedness and everybody was doing, looking out for themselves and doing what they thought was right and all of that, somehow his family looked at the world that they saw out there and everybody telling you, hey, man, if, if, if it feels good, do it. Whatever you feel is right. There's no truth. You know, we can just have fun and live it up. This is the, you know, this is the life that matters. They looked at Noah, their father, and said, he looks crazy to me, but I believe him. 
Something about his character, something about who he was, that somehow very few people in the world believed his message. And this is always how it goes with truth, isn't it? Truth isn't determined by the masses. Truth is believed on by the few. Typically, that's what we see. And so God brought judgment to the ancient world, but he saved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. And Noah, even in the midst of that, he never, this is the important thing, Noah never stopped saying that this is what's right. He ne- Noah never backed off of this is right and this is wrong even though the whole world was against him. He held fast to knowing right and wrong. And, and here's the thing about judgment. Because we got, we've got um, the, the angels, we've got Noah. The flood came in one day. I mean, it, it continued on, but all of a sudden, it was time. And the same thing, we go on to Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll talk about that. Um, when judgment comes, it comes quickly and unexpectedly for those that are unprepared. It catches people by surprise because we live under the pretense that, hey, everything's just going to continue the way it is. I mean, you know how you felt on on 9-11? That feeling of being violated, that feeling that everything has changed, that feeling all of a sudden, boom, it happens and everything changes. And it sort of snaps us out of of our our complacency, snaps us out of our, our sleep. So Noah was a preacher of righteousness and God brought in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And then... We come to Sodom and Gomorrah. So Peter just marching. He's just saying, look, this is the reality. Judgment is a real thing. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live, afterward would live ungodly. God is so very and absolutely paid. I'm so glad God hasn't returned yet. I got saved in, in like 1994. And I'm glad God didn't come in 1990. And I know people, you're praying for people right now that they would get saved because they, you know, they take the things of God lightly and, and, and all that. And, and you say, oh, oh, I hope God gets a hold of them. You know, I'm praying for them. And, and so God is patient. This is what Peter gets to in chapter 3. God is long-suffering. He is so patient. And he will wait, and he will wait, and he will wait, and people will, and, and the, we read it in Hebrews today. Listen, and maybe I'm speaking to somebody right here. Today, if you are hearing his word, do not harden your heart. Today could be the day of salvation for you. If God doesn't judge, uh, if there's no final judgment, then God owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. That's what Billy Graham said. What's the problem with Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, most of us, you know, we know about the sodomy homosexual sexuality, but there was a problem preceding the problem. This is what Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel chapter 16. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity or the twistedness of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride. Fullness of food and abundance of idleness. So there were the three things that preceded the exacerbation of, of homosexual practices and, and sexual sin. And I think, you know, and, and homosexuality was their deal. We see plenty of that today. Uh, both, we, we, this is all over the news. Um, pride. Fullness of food. Hey, I, I'm my own man. I can do what I want. Fullness of food. Yeah, I, I've got so much free time and, and so much abundance 
And they begin to turn inward and an abundance of idleness and all this free time. And so in, in the midst of all that, that vacuum, people fill it with, uh, with things for themselves. And here was the other problem. So they had all of that, but at the same time, it says, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. So there's this abundance of food, but nobody cares about those in need. The whole thing begins to implode, turn in on self, and one of the byproducts of that is sexual sin. Everybody becomes concerned with their own needs being met, their own fulfillment, their own satisfaction. And so that was the sin that preceded that. And, and I'll, you know, we're, we're not bashing one or the other. Um, God is clear about his plan for sexuality, is he not? And, he, and, and in the church, we've taken, you know, we've taken some things much more lightly than we have others. Um, and, and because, you know, it's, it's like the frog in the, in, the, in the soup bowl thing or the frog in the, the soup kettle, you know. You put the frog in when it's boiling and he jumps right out. But you put the frog in while the water is cool, and then you slowly heat it up, and he doesn't realize that he's being cooked. And again, this is why I go back to the Word of God. It's so easy to lose your moorings, and so easy to lose our foundation. Uh, and so it's not just, you know, but we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. Whether that person, whatever gender they are, whatever gender identity they choose, all that stuff, we are still, our, our marching orders from God are, are to love our neighbors ourselves. And sometimes loving our neighbor means we tell them the truth rather than, than encouraging them to perpetuate in a thing, whether it's living together and, and sex outside of a marriage relationship. I mean, we do a lot of benevolence here at the church and we meet all kinds of people. And I'm not, try, not trying to condemn, I'm just giving you the reality. We meet all kinds of women that come and they have multiple children from multiple husbands. And none of those guys are involved because they, they, it didn't take seriously commitment. You've got to have a permit to buy a gun, but you can father a child without any trouble. And we see the results of that. The difficulty with that. And God makes it so clear. That, that those children to be brought into the world under a covenant relationship of protection and, and mutuality and, and family. Now again, I'm not trying to condemn I'm just saying we can't come off the mark, you know. And, I, and adultery is another one we've, we've sort of uh, explained away or, or gotten soft on. And again, I know there's a lot of people in here that have been divorced and, and, and for a variety of reasons. And I'm not saying you can never continue your life. I mean, God is, there's grace. God is so gracious. But the problem they were having is they were saying, because God is gracious, we have a license to sin and do anything we want. And that's not true either. There is grace and there's truth. And so when I meet a couple, you know, maybe coming to get married and they've, they've been divorced, we talk about why, what happened? What went wrong? And, um, and, and if this was, if I'm talking to the person who chose to step out of that marriage relationship, you know, you can't unscramble an egg, right? You can't, you can't, so it is what it is. The question of have you, have you acknowledged maybe your sin in the matter? Have you got down your knees and confessed, you know, Lord, I was wrong in what I did. I didn't stick it out. I, maybe I should have stayed committed or, or whatever that might be. And you confess that to the Lord and you receive the forgiveness that he promises you. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. It's not ignoring on one hand. It's not approving on the other. There's this middle ground of confession of sin. And I think those are healthy things. So we're not just, you know, uh, if someone, you know, there is this grace and truth and. 
And as a society, we're sort of losing our moorings, losing our, our place. And, and part of that is because there are those in the church. Now I'll read this. Because when the church gets confused, everything gets confused. This is from a church website, an active Lutheran church website in Denver, Colorado. This is their statement of faith. We are a group of folks figuring out how to be liturgical, Christocentric, meaning Christ is at the center, social justice-oriented, queer-inclusive, incarnational, contemplative, irreverent, ancient future church with a progressive but deeply rooted theological imagination. What does that mean? But see, Peter says they use plastic words. Now, and I just, you know, I know the hot button thing in there is queer inclusive. And I want to tell you that I am willing to include anyone who's, and I didn't use, I don't even like that word queer, but that's the word they use. I'm willing to include anyone in here who is queer with me in repentance and confession of sin and a calling on the name of God, uh, on the name of God for freedom and liberty from my sin. I'm willing to include you under the blood of Jesus Christ, just like I was for the sinful thoughts and, and things that I had in my life, you can be included with all of us at the foot of the cross, confessing our sins, knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. We're, we, all stand, we all stand laid bare at the cross. So I'm not sure what that means. I'm working on that. Y'all with me still? Yeah. Anybody who's interested, I can give you the website later on. But this is, but this is, look, this is growing and growing and growing. And no one, you know, we're all so working so hard to be politically correct. We're politically correct while people are going toward judgment. We're 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 excusing sinfulness in the name of tolerance, but really it's lack of love and it's self-love because I don't want anybody to think any worse of me. And the agenda, listen, you can get a a book that talks about the agenda to change your mind about things about marriage. It is very, look, they are slick. And they want to influence you in the way you think about things like marriage. And and they're going to present certain things in a very good light so that you watch and go, oh, that's a good thing. You think the thoughts you think are your own? Someone's telling you what to think. And if you don't have the word of God, you don't know it. You got nothing to combat that with. Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. Uh, Lot, you know, Lot, Lot goes into Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, we're just going to sleep here in the square. And the, and the guy's like, no, 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 you better come sleep in our house. And then they knock and they want to know him carnally. And it says that God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Verse 7 says he delivered Lot. So Lot had, had certainly compromised in terms of being uh, enamored with some things about Sodom. But even in the midst of that, you know how it feels. Even in the midst of that, his soul was tormented by what he saw and heard. He, we, you don't get that picture from reading Genesis necessarily. You go, Lot, what has happened to you? But be, and that's sort of the sign, I think, that, that he did still... His conscience, he saw this day after day, and it tormented him to see the way people were living and to see what they had compromised in. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented 
uh, his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Lawless is without law, without uh, no governance, no, I don't want to live under any rules. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And we see where that leads society. And if God can do that, and this is the point, if God, God knows, so I can be trusting of God that he knows who's who. I don't have to, I'm thank God it's not my job to sort them out. Right? I, I'm just, I can stick with what's true, even though others are doing other things. You know, I don't have to follow that. I can stick to what's true, and I can trust that God is going to take care of it. That he knows, and he's so patient, he's much more patient than me. The godly out of temptations reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those, and here's the, you know, some of the signs of the false teachers and what they lead to, the, uh, especially those who walk according to the flesh, not according to the spirit, in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, or literally despise government. Uh, not necessarily the civil government, you could include that, but really despise being governed. And we know, we see this rising in, in the young generation. People, you know, teachers know about this. Despise authority. You used to have some authority as a teacher. Not anymore. Parents don't even have authority. Kids don't want to, you know, it's a very hard time. And s- people get rebellious, and they don't want to anybody to tell them what's right and what's wrong. I'm going to figure that out and decide that for myself. Uh, by the way, when God's changed Jacob's name to Israel, you know what Israel means? Governed by God. And the answer isn't no government. The answer is God's government. And that, whatever the, you know, we get so upset about elections and things like that. Whatever's going on in the, nationally, the question is, what's going on in the church? What's going on in your heart, in your household? Is your household, is your heart governed by God? They are presumptuous. Self-willed, that's an interesting word. Self-willed literally means, it's, it's a combination of a word that means self and pleased. Self-willed means I, I'm concerned only with pleasing myself. And, and, you know, pastor, we get together as pastors and we discuss the, the, the challenges that, you know, it's very likely that as a church, because we have a wonderful, nice building, we may be in one of those places where someone who comes and asks to perform or to have a same-sex marriage here. And I'm going to have to answer that. And the thing that troubles me is not that they want to do that. That's, that's challenging enough. But the challenging thing to me is that they don't care if I violate my conscience to do it. I don't, I don't care what you think about what you, what's right and wrong for you. I want you to violate your conscience so I can have what I want. And that's the idea behind self-will. Even though there's plenty of other places where someone could get married. That, that, the bakery situation that happened where the, the bakery company didn't want to bake the cake for the same-sex marriage and... They lost the case, had to bake the cake. Even though there were plenty of other bakeries where they could have got it baked. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So even so, so built up, so proud, so empowered, that even more so than, they would do things that even more powerful angels wouldn't do. This is like no holds barred. Nothing stopping them. Verse 12, and, and I'm never going to get through the whole chapter. Um, but these, 
these teachers and those that follow them, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Again, be careful of who you're following, where they're going. Uh, Peter calls on, 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 na- on nature. He says they're like, na- they're like natural brute beasts. They're... they're um, they're irrational. You can't, ration, you can't rationalize with somebody. You know, I try to rationalize with people about homosexuality. The idea is that, you know, well, we're born this way or, or, or whatever the idea is. Any way you slice it, the parts don't fit. I, I'm just a simple guy. You can rationalize it all you want. And look, and again, I don't say that irreverently. I, 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 have, I, would treat, I would never treat someone who had a same-sex attraction any differently. And I know, I know a lot of people that, that are in that boat. And I would never shun them away. Uh, they are created in the image of God. They are deserving to be redeemed by God. All of that is true. They deserve love. They need, matter of fact, maybe more than others, they need love. Real love not lust, somehow trying to fill a place in their life with something that will never fill it. But look, the, the whole idea of same-sex marriage, family, it, it's only allowed by science. It's not biological. As I said, you know, when you, you don't have to be an electrician to know this thing. You know, an electrician knows that you've got a male end and a female end. Two male ends don't fit together. So, I'm, you know, But you can't rationalize with someone who has determined their direction no matter what. And and it's sort of like he says, they're they're made to be caught and destroyed. And and let me get the the focus off of the homosexuality thing because we've got got all kinds of people living together before they're married and and, and all kinds of other things going on. But the false teachers have determined their direction. They they can't be rationalized with. Uh, They are perpetuating this and attracting others to it proud of it, presumptuous about it. And he says, the only thing that you can do is they're, they're so irrational and so bent on a direction, they have to be caught and destroyed. And, you know, anybody ever dealt with a rabid animal? You know, the PETA people don't get involved when you've got a rabid dog. You know the only cure is you've got to save that other people from that dog. Because that dog now is, is rabid. He's, he's doing things that aren't rational. Um, and, and the only end for him would be destruction. And none of us would disagree with that. And so Peter is saying this is the end that is for the false teachers ultimately. Um, they perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. So things that used to be uh, reserved for... Um, being hidden nighttime now it's happening during the day nobody seems to blush anymore nobody cares anymore we make movies about it tv shows about it it's all over the place and it's all happening during the daytime they are spots and blemishes uh, carousing in their own deception while they feast with you so they're in church they're part of the communion part of the agape meal and, and yet this you know taking part in, in, in the thing that's so sacred in terms of remembering Christ's sacrifice. And Christ's sacrifice wasn't so that I could just live in a sinful life. His, his sacrifice was so that I could be set free from it. 
So on one hand, taking part in the, in the, the love feast, and on the other hand, um, carousing uh, or living in luxury, driving you know, f- fancy cars and all that stuff, and, you know, just li- living all on the outward. But it's all delusion, that's what Peter says. It's all, they're living their delusion in, in the middle of all this. Now look, verse 14 says, they have eyes full of adultery. And that full means stuffed. They cannot get enough. And again, I go back to the online predators. Uh, and we go into church predators. You know, how, many, how many sex scandals have we seen happen in churches where people in power, uh, they take advantage of, who do they take advantage of? Enticing unstable souls. They know right where to look. And, and they're slick and they're convincing and they use their power, they use their position uh, to then manipulate someone who maybe has just been through a divorce. Someone who is uh, struggling with addiction or struggling with, with being loved and take advantage of that. You see why Peter's being so hard with this? It's just not right. And God knows it. And, now, and I know it. And you know it. And Peter's just willing to say it. That's the difference. That's why it's sort of like, whoa, blowing us away. Just because we're so not used to hearing anybody say this stuff today. Because this is the stuff we're not supposed to say. It's the stuff we all think but aren't supposed to say. Eyes full of adultery, uh, cannot cease from sin. They, 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 you just can't stop them. They're just going forward, enticing unstable souls. It's like a kid that's, you know, a baby that's just learning to walk a, a you know, year old or year and a half old, and they're walking with their feet real wide, and they're so unsteady. You just go over, and you just go, boop, and you just knock them right over. Boom, down they go. That's kind of fun, isn't it? <laughs> they have forsaken the right way and gone astray. See, that, that's where it always happens. It happens when for, you, first you forsake the right way, Oh, I think I, I skipped a verse. Let me go back a little bit. They have a heart trained in covetous practices. They want more and more and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So Peter bringing attention to the madness of people. I mean, Balaam, most of you know the story, Numbers uh, chapter 22, I believe. Balaam's a prophet. The Israelites have this great uh, uh, army coming toward Moab, and the Moabite king is all worried. So he says, man, i gotta, I got to fight this on a spiritual level. I'm going to find a prophet that can curse the nation and reduce their numbers so that we have a chance. And so they hire, try to hire Balaam. And at first, Balaam's like, no, God said I can't do it. God said I can't curse the people. And so the king sends him back to Balaam and says, tell Balaam I'll give him silver and gold and whatever he wants. I'll give it to him. And then Balaam says, well, God said I can't, but hang around just in case he changes his mind. So they stay the night, and, and God says, go ahead, Balaam, go ahead, go if you want. And Balaam says, that's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for God to tell me I could do what I wanted to do. And so Balaam goes, and God was upset. Because he knew, God knew Balaam wanted to do it. And so God let that be revealed. So ba- Balaam goes to, because he's, what's he interested in? He's not interested in God. He's interested in what he's going to get out of it. And so he goes and he rides on his donkey 
And the donkey just all of a sudden he's riding along and the donkey veers off into the field. And the guy's like, what, Balaam, what are you doing? You know, and he sort of gets his donkey back on course. And then the donkey bashes him into a wall and then into this wall. And, and Balaam is just getting mad at this donkey. Any of you who ride horses or have ever owned a donkey, you know how that feels. And so finally, the, the angel of the Lord is blocking the donkey from going forward. And the donkey sees it, but Balaam doesn't. And that's how people get so crazy, they, don't, they can't see it. Everybody else sees it, but you don't see it. Even a donkey can see it, but Balaam can't see it. So the donkey just, you know, sits down on his rear end. And Balaam gives that donkey a smack, boom, you know, hits him with a whip. And the donkey goes, hey, wait a second. And Balaam, the, the funny thing about the story is Balaam's not surprised about that. The donkey starts to reason with Balaam, says, hey, haven't I been your donkey for a long time, and have I ever done this to you before? And Balaam's like, um, no, uh-uh. You know, the donkey's now winning the conversation, right? The donkey is the more rational. Oh, never done that before. So finally God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees. And, and that's the point Peter is making is that these false teachers like Balaam, oh, by the way, so what Balaam does, see, he can't curse the people because God said you can't curse people on blessing. Balaam says, I may not be able to curse them, but I can teach you how to get them involved in a thing that will, get, that will bring, cause God to bring judgment on them. I can get them to judge themselves or to bring judgment on themselves by teaching them to get involved sexually with these people from other uh, uh, pagan, pagan practice, pagan women. And God had said he would, he would have to uh, punish that. And so he, what Balaam does is through false teaching, he entices them to get involved sexually, and, and it brings judgment on themselves. And that's, what, that's the comparison. And he does it for personal gain. Oh, boy, we need to stop. Let's stop there at verse, verse 16. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, Restrained the madness of the prophets. So, um, so we have the rest of that to look forward to next week. As if Peter's not, but please, the, the end of that, I mean, go ahead and read that at home. The end of it is just, is just phenomenal, phenomenal, the, the, what Peter says at the end. And the point of all this is, and I want to remind you as Nick comes up, the point of all this is that your decisions have, have consequences, not just earthly consequences, which they do, but spiritual consequences. And we think, oh, it's just a decision. It's just, a, uh, you know, uh, it's just politically correct, or it's just this or just that. God has been so clear. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he doesn't tell us these things because he wants us to not have any fun, because he wants to be mean or, you know, constrain us in a way that would, just because he doesn't like to see us enjoy ourselves. He tells us this because he knows the damage that anything outside of his will produces. There is a wide gate and many go through it. The problem is they don't realize where it leads. It leads to destruction. And I'm so thankful. You know, I was on a destructive path. Any of you in a destructive path? You've been there. You know what it causes and how it starts so small and so simply one suggestion, one enticement. And it can destroy lives. It can destroy families. It can destroy generations. And some of you are still recovering. 
from things that have happened, abuses that have happened to you. And, and I've been given a commission by God. I don't know why you came here today, and I don't know what you expect when you came here today. I don't know if you expected this to be like your last church or, or whatever you wanted. But I've been one commissioned by God. The truth is not mine to play with. It's His. And I'm committed to teaching it with each section with all of my heart. You know, we, were, we were at the men's retreat and, um, and just uh, this one guy that was there. I don't know if Moose, is Moose in here today? Or maybe he's out there. This guy, just this precious guy to share in his testimony about what the Lord was doing in his life and just to see um, you know, people want to tell you, oh yeah, you can love God and you can also engage in this thing here. But why would I want to engage in that if it's going to destroy my life? When God died so I wouldn't have to. And God has set me free from so much, so much stuff. And that's what I long to see. That's the power of the gospel is not to, to continue in sin, it's to be free from it. And so maybe you need to know that power. Maybe you need to know that love of God who loves you enough to tell you the truth. So the prayer room is open uh, after service and if you want to, uh, you got something in your life you want to pray about, you want to seek the Lord about, I, I so thoroughly enjoy seeing oppressed people get set free, seeing people stuck in addiction or selfishness or all these things and just God takes takers and he makes them into givers and God takes self-centered people and he just makes them Christ-centered and it changes everything. It changes our world. How does the world change? One life at a time. One life at a time. Don't point at the TV and, and holler. Look in the mirror. And I know that's hard truth, right? But it's, it's true still. Is it not? So uh, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen? Let's stand. and. Uh...